Hello, good morning. Uh, my name is Michael, for you guys who don't know me, and uh, I have the privilege of speaking this morning. If you guys have a Bible, can you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21? It is the last verse in chapter 4, and uh, this is where Paul is going to kind of make a bit of a transitionary statement for us as we are moving forward, and it's a scary one, if we're honest. It is quite terrifying, especially for me, coming from a quite Hispanic household. Uh, the first opening little phrase here is a terrifying one, and it's this, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21, what do you wish? Paul is going to ask them what kind of uh, discipline they would like. And for me, I did not want my mom asking me what kind of discipline. That is terrifying. And so Paul looks to them and he asks them this first question, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Paul has spent a lot of time up to this point setting himself up as a father one who's coming as an authority and as a parental figure to this Corinthian church, which is kind of everywhere, very divided, has a lot of different issues. And uh, parenting is a very interesting thing. I saw probably one of the greatest moments of parenting in my entire life the other day um, at a clothing store. Me and my wife were shopping and we see a, a woman and her daughter. And uh, this daughter was just not paying attention, not listening, and was just kind of all over the place. And so the mom's just getting frustrated. And at that point, another their mom and little girl walked through the door. Now, this second little girl and the second mom were having a great time. The mom was asking the little girl to do things. The second little girl was being quite respectful, very, very nice, and it was a great time. So the first mom looks to her daughter and goes, you see how that little girl's acting? She's so nice. She's so polite. She's so respectful. I'm going to go walk to that mom and ask if we can trade. I have never in my life seen more panic on a young girl's face, like looking at her mom, grabbing her at the pants, going, Mom, remember, you love me. You love me. Please don't trade me. She goes, okay, I'm not going to trade you if you pay attention. She goes, okay, okay. And a complete behavioral shift. And I went, that was the greatest parenting moment I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Like, it was incredible. And she kind of knew her kid and she knew how to kind of, you know, pull on the different strings that was going to make her work. And Paul's in the same situation. He has this group of people, this community that he's going, how do I make this work? You guys are so messed up. How do we kind of pull the different strings to get you to work? He's trying to get them to remember something that he's first established. Um, I remember listening to a lecture a long time ago. And uh, it was a man who, uh, who teaches at Regent College, and he spoke about something that uh, was quite interesting. He says this, that the priest once in the Old Testament goes into the Holy of Holies with an ephod. It's a, it's a piece of clothing, and on the breastplate, there's precious stones that were inscribed the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's not too far for us to push that the New Testament is adamant that Jesus Christ is the real high priest before the throne, and that when you become a Christian, your name is inscribed over the heart of Jesus. And when the Father sees that, he sees an absolute beauty. To be spirit-filled, to be loved by God, is to be melted with spiritual understanding that this is what God sees when he sees you. The only eyes that matter in the universe see you as more precious than all of the jewels under the earth. To see that you are loved, and that your heart being evoked to love back where there is nothing more joyful or pleasurable than to love the Savior. That's what it means to be loved by God and to be spirit-filled. 
This is a beautiful reminder for us to look at our lives and go, man, I need to go back to that. That's what Paul's doing. Let's go back to that, guys. You got a lot of different issues. You got a lot of different things, but let's, let's just try going back to that. And so how are we going to do this? I'm going to give you the choice. I'm going to give you the option. What, should, what shall we do? Because this is what we got to get to. Man, the Corinthians are divided by a lot of different sins. One commentator says this, the real problem addressed in 1 Corinthians 1 to 4 is one of partisanship. It is a power struggle, not a theological controversy, which motivates the writing of this passage. Paul's goal in 1 Corinthians 1 to 4 is not the refutation of heresy, but the prevention of stasis. They're stagnant. They're dull. They're staying in the exact same spot. Paul's going, let's get some, let's get some dynamic movement going on here. Let's change. Let's, let's do things a bit differently. Why are we just staying the exact same way? We're divided. You're caring about Paulo, Apollos. You're caring about me. You're, you're all about Cephas. We're all divided. Everybody has their own groups. Let's get back onto the same page. And he's just pleading with this group going, let's figure this thing out. We have to get you to change. What we realize so often about the Bible and its work with us is that God is much more interested in weaning us off the addiction of our own ego and selfishness and our own sin, that God will deal with us in a severe mercy in order to make a deep change in our hearts. Paul is pleading with them. How are we gonna do this? How are we gonna change? To be honest, I think the same question applies to us in the room. How are you going to change? Change particular behaviors, habits of sin that have kind of just taken a grip on your heart. You need to change. It's very clear. How is that going to happen? For some of us, we do not change our habits when it comes to sin because, to be honest, we don't want to. If I think of why do you not do a certain sin, let's, let's just, for an example, take pornography. Why do you not watch pornography? Well, a lot of us would say, you know what? I want to have a healthy relationship with my spouse. I just don't want to feel kind of dirty or feel like I'm quite selfish in this action. I, don't, I wouldn't like that people would find out about this and then my reputation at the church might be tarnished or in my communities. I just don't think that I would like that very much. Now, the reasons why you wouldn't participate in such a sin all goes to the consequences of that sin. And so if you have a problem with this, where it is a habitual thing that keeps going and coming up in your life over and over and over and over again, man, you could try willpower. Okay, I'm going I'm I'm to get some buddies. I'm going to just have accountability. I'm going to put a timer. I'm going to make sure I, I do these things. And it's, it's all of your efforts. But in your mind, the consequences are the thing. The consequences. And if that's the only way that you see your own sin, it's never going to leave you. It's never going to change. I used to think about uh, in youth ministry where I work, it's very interesting to glorify different sins. I would tell uh, certain stories about my life back in high school and drinking. I, I went on one particular trip in high school to Italy and Greece with a group of my classmates. And uh, at one point we stole all of the pool chairs and we put them on the roof because that was awesome. 
And we go and we take him to the top and we went to the liquor store and uh, because the drinking age there is like seven. And so we go and we get a bunch of booze and we go to the rooftop and we start pre-mixing all these drinks and it's like a 360 degree view of Rome and it was beautiful and we're having this awesome time and everybody's drinking and one of our teachers walks upstairs and uh, he starts looking at us and we'd been drinking for quite a while. He goes and he grabs one of the cups and as he walks out, he goes, this better not be spiked, gentlemen, and walks through the door and you should have seen us. We were freaking out. We were losing our mind. We're going to get sent home. We're going to be those guys who got sent home from Europe because we decided to throw a party on the roof and we were terrified. And I'd always tell this story and like, it was funny, but it was awesome. It was such a glorious time. Oh, but that was back in the day. But now I'm different. It was almost like I was glorifying that very thing. I enjoyed some pieces of it, but the consequences weren't very good. This is how we operate with sin. We think about the consequence all the time, the result of why the problem is. But if all of your mind sticks to the consequence and the consequence and the results, you will not change your habits. If you think to yourself, why do you still have a porn addiction? It's because you first foremost have to ask yourself, Man, the reason why I do not get over this is because I enjoy it. I like seeing the images that I see on the computer screen. I like when I see a woman walk by that I begin to stare and look at her. I enjoy those things. And if you in the heart of hearts do not find the joys of sin just as bad as the consequences, you will never get rid of it. If the consequences is the only thing and the actual joy of it has not become unattractive, nothing will move you. You have to change. It has to be different. And it's weird because you think of it and you go, okay, if I'm participating in this action, that action is sin. It's sin. And what is the result of sin? The God of the universe dead on a cross. And then you look at that particular sin and your nature with it and you go, yeah, it is a bit twisted that I find so much joy in something that led Jesus to die. This isn't about effort. This isn't about ability. This isn't about willpower. You know when we say that change happens through the gospel? That's exactly why. It's that story. It's that narrative. It's Jesus in the forefront of your mind where you go, man, how could I even participate in that? That's kind of messed up when I think about it that I would find so much joy in the thing that led my savior to die and have to redeem me. And Paul looks at them, we need to change. Your sin has to change. You must be different. And he loves them and he cares for them and he wants to go to such an extent as to go, do I have to come this way or do I have to show up this way? Do I have to show up with the rod or with the spirit of gentleness? The question here is not whether Paul will show up, but how he will show up. He puts the issue squarely before them. He could come with a whip or a rod and sternness, ready to chastise or to rebuke. Or he could show up in love, the gentle spirit. But that's assuming that those people are ready for that kind of an approach. I love that Paul has both of these options for them because he doesn't have a cookie cutter way of handling these individuals. Just like every parent with multiple children, 
Uh, my wife, if you've ever met her, is she's the energizer bunny. She does not have uh, a shut off. She's just go, 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 go. Like I'm pretty sure she wakes up for like a minute and a half of the morning and is already bursting out into song. Everything is a musical. She's clicking her heels. Like it is crazy. And I'm sitting there going like, I, I don't talk for two hours after I wake up. Like this is very, a dramatic difference. And this was her, her whole life. She was just the extrovert of all extroverts. She's hugging everyone, playing with hair. Like it's crazy. So when she was a kid, her parents would discipline her with a timeout. Like the practice of silence and solitude for her is hell on earth. Like it is crazy. She does not want that. But then the middle child, her name was Rachel. Rachel is incredibly introverted. And there are times where Alicia, my wife, would make a mistake as a child and her parents would put her in the timeout and she's crying. No, the wall, it doesn't talk back. Like that's all she wants. And then there's Rachel and Rachel would scribble on the wall or break something and then she would go to her parents and go, I'm putting myself in a timeout. And she would go and walk and the parents were like, what in the, what just happened? And then the next time it would happen and oh, you know what, guys, I screwed up. I'm going to go put myself in a timeout. And they saw her and they were like, hey, hey, we're the parents, okay? We're telling you what to do. And you know what your punishment is? Socializing, sit on the couch, right? And she's like, no. Like, it was, it was so different. It's so different for the two of them. You know this. The, the behavior and the way that you operate with your children is not so cookie cutter. You see their tendencies, you see their hearts, and you change the way that you operate with them depending on who they are. Paul is the exact same way. Do I have to be tough or can I come in love? H how do you think I should show up here? Now, now being tough sternness, rebuke, the rod is not something so different than what Jesus, Jesus experienced himself. Hebrews chapter five, verse eight says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. When it says that he learned obedience and moved, he moved, it means he moved from one level of obedience to the other. Here comes a new challenge and he begins obedience again. Here comes another kind of challenge and he becomes obedient again. He is learning at each stage the actual implementation of his obedient heart in the acts of obedience, and he is doing it through what he suffered, which means that God ordained suffering at times in the life of Jesus was to bring him to the fullest expression of obedience. And Paul was a very similar way. It's crazy when you look at Paul's story, Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned which means there was a time when Paul was on the dirt floor of a prison where he wasn't very content. When Paul was shipwrecked and he didn't rejoice. When he was bitten by a snake and he wasn't worshiping. When he was at the end of Caesar's sword and he wasn't saying to live as Christ and to die as gain. There was a time where he didn't have those kinds of convictions. But what does this say? He learned them. How? Pain. It's the rod of severity that for Paul changed him from the inside. Now, some of us, to be honest, we do not learn obedience because we think we're already there. We think we understand. We think we have all of the attributes and things that we need in life. It's so funny when you talk about, uh, specifically to older guys, about uh, their careers in athletics. 
They were one injury away from the show. You know what I mean? One injury, oh, I just had a thing with my hamstring, but if I, if I wasn't, I would be on the Winnipeg Jets or the Canucks. You know, or you always talk about them and their careers and they go, I was playing high-level hockey, which is like, what? Everyone played high-level hockey, okay. You talk about your accomplishments and your abilities and all of those things, and you think you're, you're, you're the man. And there's very different examples in the Bible all the time of people who were way better than us. David, as an example, he sat there on a rock and he played his harp and it literally says that demons fled from him. I've never done that. I can't play an instrument. I played a mean recorder seventh grade, that's it. Demons fled by him playing the harp and we're going high level hockey. David sat on a rock with his father's flock and a bear showed up. Yeah, one day I was just, I was just kind of sitting there and this bear came out of nowhere, it was crazy. So I killed it with my bare hands. Sorry, what? Yeah, I just, just used these guys, you know? It was, it was, it was a great experience. And we think we're all that. Yeah, I don't know. I saw this really tall guy one time and he was on the other army and uh, I just kind of walked up. I had a little satchel thing with me. I grabbed up a couple of rocks and I thought, oh, let's give this one a go. So David in his life, obedience, obedience, obedience. How? Severity. When Samuel looks to him, and says all of these things, calling him to change. When he makes all of these mistakes and he's called to repentance, that is obedience through severity. The other side of this is Paul asks very clearly, should I come with the spirit of gentleness? Now this, to be honest, is the worst one of them all. It stings even more than severity does. I remember one time we were driving in the car, me and my wife, and as we're driving in the car, we just got into this really heated argument. You know, it's kind of awkward, like no one's talking. You're both like staring out the window, but trying to drive at the same time. And it's just kind of weird, like tense. And it's just, oh, it's so different. We parked the car, we got to where we got to. I opened the door and I just looked outside. It was a beautiful blue sky, no clouds in sight. We get like three of those a year. So I opened the door, it was like a light breeze that kind of just, you know, passed by my face. The sun was hitting me. That was the moment. I felt so much conviction. It was gentle. It was beautiful. And it's as if God was showing me, look at the juxtaposition, look at the contrast between what I'm giving you out here and what you guys are doing in this car. There's this gentle, small rebuke, and that was the one that stung the most. Paul shows up and he says, man, I, I want to be gentle. The other word for gentleness through the Bible is, is meekness. Jesus used that term a lot. And one of the Beatitudes, it's the third Beatitude, Jesus says that uh, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And that's the kind of crazy thing for, for him to be able to say, because when I think of world conquest, I don't think of gentleness. 
I don't think of someone who's just very kind and patient. No, world conquest or possession of the whole universe given to the meek of all people is a quite strange idea. The world thinks in terms of strength and power, of ability, self-assurance, aggressiveness. The more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more you organize and manifest your powers and ability, the more likely you are to succeed and get the job done. But for Jesus, meekness. It's interesting when you look at the order of the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit, those who understand that they are spiritual zeros. They have nothing to offer. They look at their own inability and they look at themselves and they see themselves wanting. The second Beatitude is blessed are those who mourn, that look at their own inability and grieve that inability. Think of Paul in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am, or I am the chief of all sinners. It's someone who understands their place because of their own inability. And then the third beatitude is blessed are the meek. That once you understand your inability, once you've grieved your inability, the beatitude that comes out of that is meekness. So Paul showing up as a father to them in gentleness is what's so interesting in my life is I grew up without a father, nor am I a father. And you have those moments where you're driving and you're asking yourself, and, and for Hispanic men, it's a terrible, terrible thing that serial fatherhood, leaving families, is quite normal and routine. And so I'm sitting in the car, and to be honest, my mind drifts and goes away, and I think of my family, and I want to be for them what I never had. And sometimes, you know, your imagination goes, and, and it's quite of a strange thing, but you start picturing or thinking about your future kids or whatever, you start thinking about weird, awkward, maybe this is just me, awkward scenarios where you're like, how would I handle this? Like, I feel like if I got a little girl, I'd be such a sucker. Like, this is awful. And to be honest, as a father, I would, I would assume that so often in your discipline with your children, it isn't about showing up as the boss or as the authority figure. For Paul, meekness for him is not showing up to the Corinthian church as someone who knows everything or is better. How he's showing up in meekness and gentleness and love is someone who is further down the road. You approach your kids that way, don't you? Trust me, I've, I've been there. You don't want to do that. I've made that mistake. You don't want to go there. For Paul, the reason why he's showing up in meekness is because he's actually absorbed all of the things that Christ has taught him in his life, his own inability. He's grieved those things, and now he wants to show up and love and allow them to change through the gentleness of his own heart, through the process of how he has himself been moved. To come in meekness means you are first and foremost aware of your own sin. It's not a natural ability. It's the true view of oneself expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is therefore two things. It's my attitude towards myself, and it's an expression of that in my relationship to everybody else. He shows up. Man, how do you want me to show up? Rebuke or gentleness? And that very character of him showing up in those ways and asking the Corinthians, how do you want me to do this, is beautiful because it shows a depth of character it shows a depth of, 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 of being for him. That's why in verse 16, when he says, imitate me, this is why you should imitate him. 
Because you see a man who has been so moved by Jesus that in every action, regardless of whether it's with the rod or with gentleness, love is the first and foremost expression. Love. That he's absorbed these moments of pain and suffering, but also of gentleness and of help and hospitality. It's the road to Damascus where Jesus approaches him and says, what are you doing? All of those movements have gone through him and what he is now expressing to everyone he encounters is love. That's the kind of person you want to imitate. Then the question that's difficult for you to see from this is to ask yourself the question, are you the kind of person worth imitating? Are you the kind of person worth imitating? For Paul, he's quite confident. Imitate me. I think, I think I'm on the right road here. I tried my best. Love is at the forefront of my mind. I've rid myself of sin. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm planting churches. I'm trying. All of these things. Imitate me. There's a depth of character. There was a change in his heart so profound that the way he moved and operated with different individuals was just astonishing. Paul moved within the tensions of Christian ministry itself how to be prophetic without being harsh or implying that one is above the sin of the others and how to get people to change their behaviors to conform to the gospel when they think too highly of themselves. Now let's take one step back, which is interesting when we look at this church. And we look at the Corinthians and we go, man, those guys are, are gong shows. They are messed up. They have zero idea what they're doing, especially as the weeks come. And you're gonna go, what is wrong with these people? But what I would say is please do not judge other Christians because their sin looks different than your own. Please do not judge other Christians because their sin looks different than your own. But allow yourself to be humbled, to sit and reflect on what Christ is doing with you and allow that expression to be the one that you give to others. And the reason why you should look at Paul and be moved in your heart is because here is a man who was a completely different individual, saw Jesus and was shaped into someone else with a depth of character, with a depth of being. There's a story I remember, and uh, it was quite profound. It was, uh, the idea was there's a prince and uh, the prince holds a big competition for his whole kingdom. And it's all for the children of the kingdom with a, a, a large lump sum of money, of gold coins. And he goes, okay, here's the competition. I want you to show up. I want you to come to the palace and I'm going to give you a pot. And whoever creates the most beautiful and tallest plant wins the prize. You have to, you have to grow the tallest plant. Whoever does that wins the whole thing. That is the rules. That's it. Go. So every little girl, every little boy grabs one of these plants, goes and, and they run to their house and begin to water and tend and care and put it into sunlight and do all of these things. And after a month, after they were trying to grow these, these plants, this one little boy who had grabbed one goes to his house and he begins to try and try and nothing is working. It will not grow. It will not show up. It doesn't even come out of the dirt. And he's asking himself like, mom, what am I doing wrong? 
She's like, I'm not sure. And he's trying, he's trying. And after the month is over, he grabs his pot with nothing to show. And he shows back up to the palace. And as he walks in, he sees everybody else's pots. And these are beautiful plants, just beautiful. They've grown to staggering heights. He looks at his own and he's sitting there going, what happened to me? The prince shows up and they're all handing in their entries. And there's a boy with nothing in the pot and he walks up to the prince. He goes, this is it. Every single person around him began to chuckle and laugh and mock him. It was quite an embarrassing moment. The prince stops all of the proceedings and he says, we found the winner. Shock on his face and everybody else. And then he reveals to everyone the one part that nobody knew, that he had put dead seeds in everybody's pot. And this is the only boy who decided to show up with his failure. That is depth of character. That is depth of being. That when you show up with what you have been given, regardless of whether that's embarrassing or not, that's the kind of life Paul expresses. I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been thrown in prison, I've been given lashes, I've been rebuked by my own kinsmen, everybody hates me, and yet I go and I proclaim the gospel as much as I can, even though it's embarrassing. You know who else did something like that? There was someone in the Bible who was spit on, who was abused, who was mocked. He's called the King of the Jews. He died a death that was actually only reserved for criminals. He was hated by his own people. He was hung up on a cross, naked. It seems quite embarrassing. And he hung there. And everyone, all the religious types, looked at that man and said, what a failure. What a revolutionary. Oh, look at all the things that he changed. The Bible makes it very clear that in that moment, he dies, and three days later, defeats sin and death, and parades sin itself into humiliation through his actions. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was abused, he was hurt, and he showed exactly who he was through the whole process. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus was going through this whole situation, he never spoke once? The Bible says that it's like a, a lamb going to the shearers. It's just quiet. And the only time he spoke, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they have no idea what they're doing. Is there a sharper critique on the human heart than that? How gentle and yet so severe. Father, forgive them, for they have no idea. You need to change. I need to change. You need to stop glorifying sin. You need to allow 
God himself to look at you, really look at you, and be obedient to the task that he is calling you to, to shift your behavior, to change, to be different, and allow yourself in situations to be obedient to the place where you would go, man, imitate me, because I think I'm on the right path. And he's going to show up sometimes with severe circumstances, with the rod, and other times he's going to show up in gentleness, but you have to be the one paying attention. Depth of being, depth of character, an outlook on life that was first and foremost love. This was the Christ that we follow. This is the God who punched a hole in the universe and showed up himself to die on a cross to redeem you in your life. Remember, your change is not your ability, nor is it your willpower, nor is it anything that stands on you. It is all him. So how do you want him to show up? Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time, that as we're just looking at this passage, that we would be so moved in our heart of hearts. God, that when we look at our own lives, that we would actually be quite changed at the simple things that we just cannot handle, God. I pray that you would move us, that you would take us to new levels of obedience that we'd ever possibly imagined previously. That God, you would shake us up and you would do things in our hearts that we never possibly imagined. That what you ask of us that we would actually go and do, regardless of how embarrassing or weird that may be. God, we love you and we pray that that begins to be the first and foremost expression to ourselves and to others around us. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen.